Good morning to you. Um, that's, that's a bunch of white stuff coming down out there. Uh, there's a lot of places you could have been this morning. God has brought you to this place, and I'm thankful for that. It is a pleasure and a privilege for us to be together in the house of the Lord. And I pray that we never, ever, ever take that for granted. Um, before we move into the sermon, I want to give you an update. I know that many of you have been praying for, for us as a family um, and for my beautiful mother-in-law. Uh, there were days, um, in fact, lots of days, when we thought we would be losing her any day, maybe any minute. Um, you know, doctors didn't give us uh, much hope at all. And I think some of the hope they did give uh, was just that, yeah, there's always a chance. Listen, I, I got to tell y'all, there are um, hundreds praying here uh, in other cities, maybe even other parts of the world. She got up yesterday with help of, of her uh, caretaker there, and she was walking a little bit, you know, shuffling around, but walking a little bit. You know, she's gone from saying, I want to, you know, I want to go to heaven tonight to, well, maybe two or three days. <laughs> and we keep telling her, see, God's time, you just got to be patient. So uh, thank you for that. Keep praying. Keep praying. Thank you for praying. We, we've seen God do uh, what I can only classify as a miracle, and we're very thankful. Very thankful for that. Before we open up Acts chapter 8, I want us to go before our Father in prayer. Will you join me there? Father, uh, Lord, we come to you, the creator uh, of heaven and earth, the creator of life, our savior, our sustainer. We come to you. Lord, this word is yours. You have given it to us. Father, I pray that as we open your word that you would open up our hearts and you would transform us by your magnificent grace. Lord, I pray that you would tear down walls that we build up. I pray that you would tear down worldviews that the world has thrust upon us and we have only too willingly accepted. Father, I pray that you would move in this man. Lord, that my life would be yours in every single second moment of my existence on this earth. Father, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase. Father, I pray that uh, this morning that you would use this broken vessel to pour out your good, clean, living water. In the name of our magnificent Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Word of God in Acts chapter 8. We're going to refer to much of the chapter, but we're just going to read and focus on verses 26 to 40. So join me there in your Bible or device or behind me or however you're, you've got it before you this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian 
a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Amen. Amen. My friends, this is a passage about Jesus and about power. But our lust, our lust for power, man's lust for power, can be insidious and very dangerous. Our lust for power can be insidious and very dangerous. Writer Robert Ingersoll said of Abraham Lincoln, nothing discloses real character like the use of power. It's easy for the weak to be gentle. Most people can bear adversity. But if you wish to know what a man really is, Give him power. This is the supreme test. It is the glory of Lincoln that having almost absolute power, he never abused it except on the side of mercy. You want to know what a man's character is really like? Give him power. Let's go to something more modern, if only fictitious. Let's go to Lord of the Rings, that great theological tome. In Lord of the Rings, you've got this ring of power, right? The, the one ring to rule them all. Uh, and, and no one can, can wield that ring without being captured by it. Frodo is given the task of taking that ring and returning it to Mount Doom where it will be thrown into the fire and destroyed. That's the only way it can be destroyed. Silly Gimli tries to destroy it with a, with a sledge, with, a, with an axe, and everything shatters. That doesn't work. It can only be destroyed by being thrown back into the fires of Mount Doom. Aragorn looks at the ring and seeks to take it up, but he understands in his wisdom as the king and Strider and the ranger, he understands that it's not his to hold, and that he cannot do it. 
And so he gives it back. He pushes it back. It's yours, Frodo. Only you can do this. Galadriel, likewise, wants the ring. She has a passion, a lust for the ring. But as she sees the power that it has, she has to turn it down and turn it away. And she's very relieved that she has passed the test and she's not given it to the lust for the ring of power. Boromir. Boromir, a man of passionate heart, sometimes good, sometimes a lot like the Apostle Peter. Boromir wants the ring of power because he wants to, to free his own people. And he feels like if he has the power, he could do so much good with it. He rationalizes away the danger, much like you and I do. In his lust for the power, it um, indirectly cost him his life. Nearly cost the life of Frodo, of Mary, of Pippin, and of others. Many things fall apart because of Boromir's lust for power. Ultimate power, my friends, in the hands of sinful man is dangerous, it's insidious, it's destructive, and we are not meant to wield it. It is telling. It is telling that the Apostle Paul reminds us that in our weakness, in our weakness, that Christ is made strong. This lust for power is birthed in our sinful desire to be like God, even to be God. And we use that power to manipulate, to dismiss, to cancel out things and people we don't like, to badger, to nag. Whether that power is real or imagined, we will use power sometimes in good ways, but more often in horrible ways. It didn't originate in this century or the last or in this millennium. It originated with Eve in a garden when she was tempted to be God to be like God and she fell to it and so did her husband Adam who was with her my friends this this passage in Acts chapter 8 is all about our lust for power God having that authentic power and what he will do with it as he builds his kingdom it's not about your kingdom it's not about my kingdom it's about God's kingdom this passage in acts chapter 8 is also this is this really cool i think it's cool anyway maybe it's just this theological nerd in me but i think it's really cool this this passage about power is is bookended bracketed by two um bookends of power on on the beginning end you've got the power of paul saul um, evil saul in acts chapter 8 verse 1 as he's been holding these um these garments of those that are that are stoning Stephen and he's standing there giving approval to the stoning of Stephen and and he goes on his way after that and he continues to brutalize the church of Jesus Christ Saul had an evil sort of power that's the beginning of it and then at the end of Acts chapter 8 you've got Acts chapter 9 1 which tells the story of this same Saul on his road to Damascus to arrest more Christians to murder them is what the passage tells us throw them into prison murder them have them done away with and God meets him on the road to Damascus and in a blinding light Saul falls to the ground and says who are you Lord who are you, Lord? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Saul begins with an evil power, and he meets Jesus Christ at the end of it, and Jesus Christ saves this evil man and gives him eternal life and a banquet seat table. How cool is that? In the middle of that, you've got two other, two other stories of power. You've got on the front end of it, you've got Simon the sorcerer, who was a lot, who was a lot more like Saul of Acts chapter 7. And on the end of it, you've got an Ethiopian eunuch who was a lot more like Saul, Paul would be later on after he met Jesus Christ. We're not going to spend a lot of time with Simon the source, but we do want to go there just a little bit. Philip the evangelist, one of the original seven deacons, had left Jerusalem with many of the other uh, Christians that had, after the diaspora, after Stephen had been killed. He goes to Samaria. Now, Samaria was, um, that was the race that was hated by, by the Jews in, in Jerusalem. They hated the Samaritans because they were what they referred to as, as half-breeds, uh, half-Jewish and half-others. Uh, they weren't true uh, Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans, or they weren't true uh, Jews. The Samaritans had some of God's word, and they had inserted other things into it, a lot of syncretism. They had blended other religions into it. Uh, but they did see themselves as some sort of a God-fear. But the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along with each other. You see it back in John chapter 4 when Jesus has come to Jacob's well and he's sitting there uh, resting and a, a Samaritan woman comes out from the village of Sychar and approaches him and he asks her for a drink. And she says, why would you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink? She knows, you don't do that. Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. It's just not, not done. And yet Philip, when he leaves Jerusalem, he goes straight to Samaria. And he gives to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells them the good news of Jesus Christ. And the passage tells us that they all listened. And that the church of, of, of Jesus Christ in Samaria grew up as many people believed in Christ. But they did not have the Holy Spirit yet. So John uh, and Peter leave Jerusalem and they go up to Samaria. And when they come to Samaria, they, they realize, hey, this is a good thing that God has done. And they lay their hands on the Samaritan people and the Holy Spirit comes. And many signs are, and wonders are done there in Samaria because of the falling of the Holy Spirit on the people of God as the church of Jesus Christ grows. Remember, remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, what did Jesus say? You'll be my witnesses uh, or you'll, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's real power. And you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, now we're getting to the Samaria part. The Samaria part is people that are not like you that you don't like. God has reached to those individuals. Now, some would not be happy about that. Of course, we'll find that out later on. But at this point, they're coming to know Christ. One of the individuals there in Samaria was a guy named Simon. Your, your translation of Scripture might call him Simon the Sorcerer, uh, might call him Simon the Magician. If it's Simon the Magician, you need to understand and put this in the right, um, the right framework. It's not Simon the Magician like he's a, a, a guy doing card tricks on um, America's Got Talent, okay? He's not that kind of a magician. He's not pulling a rabbit out of his hat. He's a sorcerer. He's an evil sort of magician. Um, a tarot card reader, if you will, or, or something of that nature. He's, he's on the evil side of, of magic and sorcery. And so he had a lot of powers. People were coming to him looking for, uh, looking for answers in their life and looking for, for ways to get over this illness or that illness. You might look at him more as a, a witch doctor um, 
in one of the villages that I visited several years ago in, o in Kokinjer, Uganda, where witch doctors held a, a sort of an evil demonic power that you could feel when you walked through their village. Simon the Sorcerer was like that. Simon the Sorcerer supposedly believes here and begins to follow Philip around, wanting more of what Phil, what's going on with Philip. But think about this. He's had all these people coming to him, and suddenly he has no more power because the people are following Philip instead. And Philip's not pointing them to himself. He's pointing them to who? To Jesus. And then John and Peter come, and the Holy Spirit falls on people, and signs and wonders are being done everywhere. Simon the sorcerer goes to John and Peter in this passage, in that, early in Acts chapter 8, and he says, I want that. I want that. And he offers them money if they will show him how to have that power. See, he doesn't want Jesus. He wants Jesus' power. He doesn't want a seat at the banquet table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. He wants to own the table. He wants control. He's heard about what happened in Jerusalem. He knows that there were authorities there, religious authorities, that had the power to kill Stephen. They had the power. And he still lusts for power. The power that he used to have, the power that the authorities in Jerusalem had, he wants power. It's interesting what Peter says to him at this point in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter calls it. You're bitter. You're, in the, you're, you're bound up with iniquity. You're, you're in bondage to sin. You're shackled by sin and evil intent. So pray to the Lord and repent. Simon doesn't do that. He looks at Peter and he asks Peter, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon doesn't want to approach the Lord and, and pray and ask for repentance. He's like um, the scene in, in Narnia when um, the, the dwarf is afraid to approach Aslan because he's, he's, been, he's been mocking Lucy that this Aslan can't really exist. Well, then the Aslan, Aslan is standing there at the fords of Baruna and he's big and he's very much a king. And you've got this, this, this um, dwarf over on the side and he's looking up at Aslan, Aslan with fear. Can, can I really approach him? The difference between the dwarf and Simon is that Simon asks somebody else to approach him on his behalf. And the dwarf approaches Aslan in fear and trembling. What do you want from God? Do you want his power or do you want him? Do you want what he can give you or do you want him? There's a big difference, my friends. That Simon sorcerer guy is a lot more like the Saul of Acts chapter 7 and early in 8. We move to an Ethiopian eunuch. Different, different story altogether. This Ethiopian eunuch wasn't interested in having God's power. He wanted God. He already had power. It's interesting to me that as much as we hear about this Ethiopian eunuch, and here we are over 2,000 years later still talking about this Ethiopian eunuch, right? And we don't know his name. We just call him the eunuch. Oh, it's the man. 
the woman, you know, that one. The eunuch, he, he has to have a name. I can't wait to see him in heaven. I want to sit down with him and I want to ask him about the whole story. Tell me more about what you and Philip talked about. What was it like there on the road? And then I want to ask him this. I want to know about the, the revival, the explosion of the church in North Africa. You see, this Ethiopian eunuch was a, was a highly educated man, very influential, very powerful man. We know he's educated because he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Um, most people couldn't read. Very few people could read. So if he's sitting there reading it, uh, he's he's educated. We know he's influential, he's powerful because he's the treasurer for the nation of Ethiopia. Uh, The the treasurer for Candace, the queen mother, the queen of Ethiopia. The king of Ethiopia would not have done, would not have um, involved himself in civilian affairs. His mother would have been the one that, that kind of ruled all the civilian stuff. Okay, and that, that would have been Candace. And she had this guy that was her, her treasurer. He controlled all the money. He was to Ethiopian royalty what Alexander Hamilton was to Adams and Jefferson in our country early on. If you want to know what that's about, watch the movie Hamilton. It'll give you a taste of it. A lot of power in that. This guy already had the power. Listen, at that time, uh, Ethiopia was different than it is now. Now we look at Ethiopia and we see this country, this small um, you know, non-influential country uh, in the northeast corner of Africa. You know, total desert, uh, not a lot going on. Oh, there's some jungles and stuff going on. Some good friends of mine have been missionaries there for years. A lot, lot of, of, of gospel stuff going on in places, uh, but it's hard, hard to be there, small country. At that time, Ethiopia stretched across much of North Africa, it was a major influence on the continent of Africa. So here, here's what happens. When this guy goes back to, um, back to Ethiopia with the gospel of Jesus Christ, revival breaks out. An explosion of the church happens and the gospel spreads across all of North Africa. Our own church, early church father, Augustine, came out of that group. What happens if you take the power of of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, you take it back to your neighborhood, back to your office, and you declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. What what will happen then? I think a gospel explosion is what happens. This guy, this Ethiopian eunuch was a wealthy man, not just because he had power and position, uh, that's not the only way we know that. We know that because he's, on, he, he, he's able to travel from Ethiopia up to Jer- Jerusalem to worship, uh, and he's not alone. He's in a chariot that he's not driving. Someone else is driving it. That's why he's able to say stop, and it stops. We know that he would have had an entourage, um, warriors, men with swords and, and spears and shields that would have been around him. There would have been in other chariots maybe. There would have been in war horses. But they're surrounding this guy, and it's a fearsome-looking scene. So I want you to think about that. Imagine that you're Philip. You've just come from Jerusalem where you saw your good buddy, your BFF, Stephen, killed, stoned for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's stoned by the authorities in the town, killed, dead, dead. Right? You go to Samaria. You see a little danger there with Simon the sorcerer. But you see, you see Peter and John are there, so you're okay, they're with you. You're not alone in Samaria. But here, God has told you to go out into the desert where you're alone. No one's having a party in the desert. But on this desert road towards Gaza, 
you see this, this crowd with swords and spears protecting this wealthy guy. And the Spirit of God says, go talk to the wealthy guy. Now, if you're afraid of authorities, if you're afraid of swords and spears, you're not going to do that. You're not touching him. You're going to back up. If he needs Jesus, somebody else will give him Jesus. I don't want to do that. Let somebody else have that role. You ever do that? It might cost me my reputation if I tell somebody about Jesus. It might cost me my job if I tell somebody about Jesus. It might cost me a place in my family if I tell somebody about Christ. It might cost me the good feelings of my neighbors if I go tell them about Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? We back up. In our culture, we have fallen prey to shame. We have fallen prey to those that will tell us, don't do that. It's not allowed. We've fallen prey to that. Philip looks at all of that that's in front of him, and he says, forget about it. I'm going to tell him about Jesus Christ. He knows that if he dies this moment, he lives in heaven the next. My friends, eternity is eternal. This world that you have here is short. Don't live for this world. Live for the next. Philip is living for Jesus Christ in the next world. It's, it's something else we have to catch about this eunuch. This eunuch, was, he, was, he was on the outside looking in. Um, to be a eunuch means that he was emasculated. Uh, he was that so that he did not bear any threat to the crown. Um, because he, was, he didn't have a family, he didn't have a heritage coming after him, had no legacy that he had to leave to his own children so he could be devoted to the crown. It also meant that he was not a threat to the, uh, to the safety or the purity of the queen. Uh, he was on the outside looking in in many ways. When it comes to family, he's on the outside looking in. When he goes to Jerusalem to worship, which is what the passage tells us he did, he's on the outside looking in because according to Deuteronomy 23, he's not allowed to go into the temple to worship. He can stand outside the door. He can listen to what's going on if they speak loud enough. He can on the black market buy a, a scroll of Isaiah because he couldn't buy it legally otherwise. But he can't worship God with other Christians or with other Jews, rather. He can't do that. He's on the outside looking in. Then he believes. You ever feel like you're on the outside looking in? Yeah, I know you do. We all do at different times. This Ethiopian believes and revival breaks out, not just in his own heart, but all across North Africa. What was the guy reading? He's reading this passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 7 to 9. Like a sheep, he, that is Jesus Christ, was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he, that is Jesus, opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, Jesus is the Son of God. In his humiliation, he lays power aside. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. The justice that was due you and I was laid on him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And beginning right there, Philip takes it from that passage and tells him all the good news of Jesus Christ right up to the present. I'm not sure it takes much faith to yearn for power and victory, but it takes faith in Christ to hold you up, to be there with you. 
for you to be okay in your weakness, to lay aside the power that you have that you might take up the cross of Jesus Christ. We yearn for power, and yet God lays down his life. What a paradox. What a paradox. What are you yearning for? You're yearning for more power, more influence. My friends, to love someone means that you will lay down your life for them. I want to make sure we catch some of the implications of this. Let me just lay them out for you, okay? It's about four. Four things I want to make sure we catch. One, he was on the outside looking in. Uh, in the church of Jesus Christ, until we're there in, in the body of Christ, we are on the outside looking in. Here's the struggle. Once someone becomes a believer, they can still feel like they're on the outside looking in. Let me tell you a secret. Don't tell anybody. General Assembly happens every year, well, except this past year because of the pandemic, but it happens every year where all the PCA pastors and a whole lot of ruling elders get together um, in, the, in the middle of summer for three or four or five days. Uh, and we conduct business of the church. We learn from each other. We worship a lot. Uh, and we, we have a good time with each other. If you ask those pastors what they're thinking when they get there, they'll tell you so, several things. These are things in common for all of us. Looking forward to seeing our friends. True. And we're fearful that we won't measure up. We are fearful that we will not measure up. Isn't that sad? That even amongst the friends, there's something about it that makes us feel like we're on the outside looking in. That we don't measure up. Even in the church of Jesus Christ. My friends, can I be frank with you? Um, here at EP, we have a great reputation for hospitality with each other. And there is that. There is that within, within your own group. Having been here only 10 and a half months, I have that, um, I guess I have that eyesight that I'm coming from the outside. And so that's why companies hire consultants, somebody that comes from the outside and looks in and sees things that the people on the inside no longer see. Um, there's a hospitality that is there amongst people that know each other well. Uh, and yet it's not there if you're outside that clique. From middle school, high school, college, young adults, all the way up to our most senior citizens. We really don't do hospitality well. We quite often leave people on the outside looking in. And if we'll look at people that have come into the body of Christ at EP from elsewhere, friends, with, with love, let me tell you, we, we've got some corrections to make as a body of believers. We focus on the people that we know well, but generally speaking, not always, generally speaking, people that come in from the outside, we leave them on the outside looking in. Maybe we're too busy. Maybe we've only got so much room for people in our, in our own little circles. I want to encourage you to act like Philip and look at the people that are on the outside and usher them in to a seat at the banquet table of the Lord. Usher them into your own banquet table in your own living room. Jesus doesn't leave any of, us, any of us on the outside looking in. 
but he calls us sons and daughters, co-heirs of Christ. Second implication that I think we find here deals with power. When we fight for power, we have to understand that others will be fighting for power as well. Then we end up fighting each other for, for power. When we fight each other for power, we're actually tearing down the whole body of Christ, you see. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that without Christ, there's discord between God and man and between man and man. You see, when we take Christ out of the picture and we're not satisfied with him being the power, and we feel like we've got to have power and control and influence and make things the way we want it, then what we end up doing is tearing each other apart. We do it in our families, we do it in our ministries, we do it in the church around the world, we do it from denomination to denomination. We're, we're really good at that. God calls us to a different place that we will lay down our power and take up his power. Third, that power of man is never enough. We will strive for it and strive for it and strive for it, but we will never be satisfied. Like the uh, multi-zillionaire said, you know, he was asked how much is enough, and he said one dollar more. How much power is enough to the powerful woman or powerful man? One little bit more. You'll never be satisfied if your yearning is only for power. Yearn for Jesus Christ instead, and you'll be satisfied to the uttermost. Fourth, Luke, the writer of Acts, is giving us here in the book of Acts a a picture of the growth of the Great Commission, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing will stand in its way. Not for Philip and not for the Ethiopian eunuch. They both have a great belief here. Let's focus on Philip. Philip has a great belief in, in two greats, the Great Commission and the Great Commandments. Great Commission and the Great Commandments. He knows that he has been sent and he's going. He knows he's told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So he loves the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he's going to go to to this Ethiopian eunuch despite the danger. He loves the Ethiopian eunuch more than he loves himself. So despite his danger, he's going to go to the Ethiopian and give him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fear will not hold either one of them back. Leave fear aside. Let fear go to the grave. Jesus Christ isn't there any longer. My friends, there's a power for us to yearn for, but it's the power of the love of Christ. And it's not our own power. The power of the love of Christ is seen in taking a long walk on a desert road where we might feel like we're quite alone. The power of the love of Christ is seen when we take time to climb into the chariot of someone that isn't like us, to climb into their space, so to speak, to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ for them. Someone that's of a different nationality, different skin tone, different job, different religion, different clothing, maybe a different aroma. I mean, think about it. The Ethiopian eunuch sitting in a chariot. Someone else is doing the hard work, the horses. Philip's been running in a desert. I don't want, I wouldn't want Philip in my chair. Actually, I would. Different aroma, different odor, different nationality, different skin tone, 
Will you climb into their chariot? The power of the love of Christ is seen as we climb into that chariot. The real power is lived out in real love that sits and dwells with someone for a while. Put the schedules aside. Put your busyness aside and sit and dwell with someone for a while. The real power of the love of Christ is spent as we spend the time talking about the things that matter most. The stuff of the soul where things get messy. and where the broken becomes beautiful. Father, I pray that you make the broken beautiful in each one of us. Father, I pray that you will so transform us that we cannot help but, like Philip, take the gospel to others. Lord, it is so exciting to read of the growth of your kingdom. Lord, I yearn for that. I yearn to see that again to see the lives of women, men, families so transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that their joy shines like the morning sun. Father, would you so move in us as individuals and as a church that we shine like the morning sun? Lord, that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace and joy of Jesus spills forth from our lives and from our lips. Lord, I pray that you bring about revival in our midst and in our communities, in our city, in our county, in our nation. For you are worthy of glory, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen.